Welcome to Cohen & Company's Chief Insights Podcast, a thought leadership series designed for C-level executives, board members, and other top decision makers. Welcome to this episode of Chief Insights. I'm Jim Lissy, the Managing Director of the M&A Advisory Group here at Cohen & Company. Today we're going to focus on the M&A in the investment industry. We'll address the trends that are driving deal growth in the sector, unique value considerations, and what companies should consider when they're contemplating buying or selling. Today I'm joined by one of our experts in the industry, Chris Bellamy. Chris is the co-president of Investment Industry Services here at Cohen Company. Thanks, Jim. This is a hot topic with many of our clients, and I'm looking forward to sharing what I'm seeing in the market and what it means for our clients. So let me set the stage with what we're seeing in the overall M&A market, and then we could drill down into the investment industry. Everyone knows that the M&A market's pretty robust right now. The pace of deals seems never-ending, and from my perspective, just tracking potential buyers is growing more and more complex. Frankly, I've never seen so many companies engaged in M&A as a strategy. There's lots of factors at work here. Companies looking to grow through acquisition, private equity groups driven to deploy capital, and the need to facilitate the transition of ownership of companies from one generation of shareholders to the next. Chris, are these same factors at work in your segment of the industry? Yes, the factors are very similar. The number of clients that are actively engaged in or thinking about exploring strategic opportunities is significantly greater than it was five to ten years ago. This is largely driven by the challenges in the current asset and wealth management space. There's significant change, and several of these disruptors include things such as significant asset flows away from actively managed products to passively managed products, fee compression and increasing costs, including both regulatory and technology costs, product distribution challenges with shrinking shelf space and demands for higher fees from gatekeepers and the various broker-dealers, an evolving product landscape with the entrance of ETFs, including actively managed ETFs. The buyers of these services are demanding different things in a different format and the need for shareholder liquidity. Um, From time to time, We've seen scenarios where the shareholder liquidity needs have changed and the various organizations um, are caught off guard by that and have to respond uh, relatively quickly. So let's drill down a little more on that active versus passive management. You know, where do you think things will come out there in terms of that push and pull? How does your industry view that from an M&A perspective? Clearly in the last 10 years, the market has gone up, up, and up. Um, people look at their investment portfolios and, and challenge their advisors and make the decision to to buy the index as opposed to invest with an advisor that will look to outperform the index over a full market cycle. Clearly, um, active management itself will not die. Um, I do think there will be a bounce back and an allocation of, of assets back to active management, particularly in certain asset classes, but there's no doubt the passively managed index products are here to stay. We're definitely seeing interest in indexes um, that are a little bit different, so whether it's a market cap index or an equal weight index or a risk-mitigated index. You know, people are taking the existing S&P 500 and developing products, many of which are really unique and attractive in the marketplace. 
When you look at the level of sophistication in your market, there's some very complex strategies being deployed right now. Does that hurt or help your valuations? To the extent that you have something that's unique, um, if you're first to market, you have a longer track record than everyone else, and you've seen a product uh, or an asset class uh, outperform over a longer market cycle, you have the ability to drive significant increase over what the standard multiples would be. So when it comes to doing deals, and you know, you've been involved in a, a broad range of industries uh, during your time at Cohen, you know, what do you see that's very unique about the investment industry versus other manufacturing and service industries? Sure. In, in operating in a regulated environment can be tricky and challenging. You need shareholder approval or client consent to transfer the majority of, of contracts. Um, that can be difficult to obtain and or expensive to the extent that you need to engage a proxy solicitor and, and get people to, to respond to those requests. In addition, it's an intellectual capital game. You know, you're, you're people, your portfolio managers, your technical know-how, it's very important to have those resources locked up as opposed to a scenario where you're buying equipment or a property or or things of that nature. I would assume that given the complexities and the regulatory issues, that certainly extends the the time frame for getting a deal done in the industry. Is that correct? It it can, especially to the extent that you have underlying investment products that are regulated by the 1940 Act, such as mutual funds and ETFs, uh, where you need to obtain that approval from the underlying fund shareholders. You need to engage with fund boards and work through that process. Unfortunately, that does slow down the time frame at which you can execute the closing of the deal. So when you look at valuations... I assume they're all over the board in your industry, depending on strategies, type of firm, et cetera. Uh, what are the primary drivers? Several of the drivers that will, will drive you to a multiple higher than market would be things such as investment performance. If you have products with the long-term uh, performance that exceeds the benchmark or is at the top tier of the class, People recognize that that's something that they can bring on board, they can put their existing client assets into that strategy, and they think they can grow that going forward. Uh, Because of that, someone would be willing to pay a higher multiple. In addition, buyers look at things on a forward-looking basis. So the ability to, to look at the existing cost structure, strip out costs, whether it be redundant fixed costs or merge existing products and layer uh, additional revenue over top of an existing you know, cost structure can drive you to a multiple that would, could be significantly in excess of what the market would pay. And then lastly, you know, we've seen it over the last several years, uh, larger institutional managers that maybe were slower to uh, jump into the ETF space have made the decision it's easier to acquire that expertise in those products as opposed to start from scratch. So there's been several deals that have been at significantly higher multiples because of the expertise and the uniqueness of that product structure that they're bringing into the fold. So let's pivot around to some of the participants in the market. When I'm selling a manufacturing company, a service company, the highest probability is that a private equity group or a portfolio company of a private equity group will end up being the buyer. 
That said, 10 years ago, and you and I have talked about this on numerous occasions, you never saw the, the traditional private equity groups involved in this market. They seem to be just poking their head into the market now. You know, can you comment on that and also talk about some of the other classes of buyers? Sure. There's always been a handful of private equity firms that have been focused in this space. Um, But to your point, I think the number of firms that are willing to do a deal or look at a deal has grown substantially. Um, Whether it be latch-on acquisitions for portfolio companies of existing PE firms or just simply an ability to diversify the underlying portfolio company structure of that private equity firm. Um, We've also seen some pretty unique structures where private equity would come in solely for the purpose of providing some liquidity uh, for a retiring shareholder. In that case, they take a minority position, uh, facilitate and provide the cash up front, and then in some cases give the management and the existing company the ability to buy itself back from private equity. We see that more and more in the private equity world as you know, just the, the, the sheer number of private equity groups growing and raising capital. Um, they're employing different strategies going into industries that they never would have five, ten years ago. But it's interesting you bring up the minority equity issue because we're seeing more and more private equity groups that are willing to look at a minority deal as opposed to a control deal. I I will say that uh, when I have been involved in those deals, uh, even though there's a minority equity position it sure looks like a control deal because of the way the contract's written, that uh, the private equity group has all the power. You know, that's an important point, and I would say in the institutional asset management space, it's important that management, the portfolio management team, have the ability to evidence to their client base and the consultant community that they maintain control. They're seen as an Mm -hmm. independent um, organization with an outside strategic partner. So that's an important distinction, I think, compared to the traditional M&A world. That's a great point. So let's turn to some of the advice you might give your clients going forward. You know, most of my time I spend on the sell side, and I've always reflected that I wish my clients would have contacted me earlier. Um, I remember years ago, I was called to a company. I pulled in, and uh, the first thing I saw was a uh, 1965 Continental that the owner was rehabbing, and it was up on cinder blocks. My first advice was, you know, let's get rid of the Continental. It's not going to show well. I'm sure there's uh, Continentals that don't run in the investment industry that uh, you really want to invest some work on the front end, getting your house in order. So... Given that, what advice do you have for clients that are contemplating some sort of M&A transaction? I think it's important that they revisit it and they think about it all the time. I think it's important to keep your finger on the pulse with what's going on in the in the marketplace. Um, things change. You can't be reactionary. You oftentimes see scenarios where you know people think they should be a buyer, and then long-term they realize they should be a seller, or they should be looking for someone of similar size to do a merger of equals. Absent having dialogue internally with your management team and externally with your advisors, I think oftentimes people are a bit naive when they enter the the process. And I think that in some cases allows them to leave dollars on the table and, and miss opportunities because they're not prepared to, to move quickly. Are, are many of your clients, when you have discussions with them about strategy, 
are they mostly looking for something to buy or are they contemplating a sale? Yeah, oftentimes they're looking to buy and looking to add on to their position of strength, looking to complement maybe an existing product line, you know, you know a shop that, that has a bunch of value-based strategies may be interested in adding a growth strategy, or we're seeing a lot of interest in asset classes such as international emerging markets, frontier, um, socially responsible ESG strategies, also an area where people are looking to offer new strategies to their clients to meet market demands. So most people are looking to be opportunistic, but unfortunately, a lot of people are facing challenges with with growing and retaining assets, um, working through the regulatory environment, which is increasingly challenging, and dealing with the broker-dealers and the gatekeepers that are restricting access to those, particularly in the mutual fund business, and looking to shrink shelf space as opposed to grow it. I assume one of the primary assets that buyers look at is the, the the quality of the people. How important is it that companies have the mechanisms in place to retain their professional staffs? You know, the retention of portfolio managers is key. Um, to the extent that you lose a, a portfolio manager, all of a sudden your institutional consultants are going to put you on watch. Um, they're going to be concerned about performance and look to potentially replace you. Um, this is a business where there's typically uh, the potential for a large number of equity owners for key portfolio management operation sales and distribution personnel. It's probably an industry that's progressed probably more aggressively uh, than other industries because of the importance of retention of some of those key individuals. What we tell uh, clients in the service industry is your assets have legs, so be careful. Yeah, that's exactly right. In this case, your assets are people, and they truly do have legs. <laughs> so. well, what else that can they do? I, you know, one of the things, one of the trends in the overall M&A market is uh, a lot more of our clients are contracting for quality of earnings reports before they even go to market. Um you know, is that something you've seen in the investment industry also? Or should they be doing that? I, I think that's something that's that's really relevant. You know, oftentimes you could have a highly profitable advisor with no debt, uh, which typically does not require a financial statement audit or any, any work around uh, quality of earnings and things of that nature. Um, you oftentimes have people that, that hear a, a multiple in the market and have a hard time figuring out how that correlates to being applied to their financial results. Having some outside quality of earnings or consultation around the process and or normalizing earnings um, to apply that multiple, I think, can be very valuable to do that up front and be positioned you know, appropriately. You know, I think setting someone's expectations from a seller's standpoint is, is very, very important um, because it's oftentimes, I'm sure you can attest to, that uh, the sellers have a sales price in mind that may be way too low or, more likely, way too high. Yeah, I call them bar multiples because uh, a recent seller will go into the bar and they'll say that uh, they've sold their company for EBITDA multiple of X, and uh, after it goes to X plus 2, my potential clients sitting there uh, come to me and say, hey, Joe sold his company for 10 times EBITDA, and I have to say, no, he didn't. Just like everyone that goes to Vegas always wins. <laughs> That's a good analogy. When you look at getting your house in order, uh, one of the things we advise our clients to do is 
if a company is selling, all the data is going to be placed into an electronic data room where buyers can come in and view all the uh, financial statements, the backup, the details. Um, we think that uh, a company that's planning on doing something two, maybe even three years down the road should start that discipline right away. Um, it's a good discipline to have, and it helps with the due diligence process. But, you know, my, my takeaway is what I heard you saying is, hey, you know, make sure you develop M&A into your strategic planning. Uh, make sure you get your house in order. And don't forget about that culture and fit. That's key in today's market. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Jim. I, I think you need to keep your head on a swivel. You need to understand what's going on in the competitive landscape. Um, you need to continue to revisit if M&A does fit at all in your strategic initiatives. You know, with respect to getting your house in order, um, as you mentioned, you know, having some quality of earnings work or perspective on the financial records is important. Oftentimes, uh, clients in this industry don't have a need for a financial statement audit given the lack of debt typically carried on the balance sheet. We would recommend if M&A is in your future, you know, consider um, having that audit work done on a regular ongoing basis. In addition, keep your mind open with respect to tax planning opportunities. From time to time, we see scenarios where people never contemplated an exit or an M&A transaction, and unfortunately they're not structured properly in the right entity or have done the right things along the way to maximize the tax benefits. In addition, with respect to culture and fit, there's a variety of different buyers that are out there. Um, you could find a competitor, someone that's strategic, someone that has complementary products, um, has a distribution channel where you may bring products to the table. That's one type of buyer. You know, private equity, as we discussed, is someone that's playing a significant role in the space. Would you have an interest in a minority deal? Would you have an interest in uh, a majority deal? Uh, what's the right type of private equity partner? What do you want them to bring to the table? All questions you need to answer. And then with respect to some of the roll-ups that are out there, uh, some great organizations that have, have rolled up wealth management or asset management firms provided a platform um, for the acquired company to do what they do best and manage money while handling things such as the sales, marketing, and distribution and all the various compliance and infrastructure needs. So understanding what type of partner you would desire is, is very, very important. Uh, oftentimes the fit is more important than the economics, and unfortunately you see scenarios where the economics are driving decisions um, with not as much consideration for the fit for the ownership group and their employees. You know, one of the things I found is that there's a lot of misunderstanding about private equity in the market. Uh, private equity today is an excellent way for a transition of senior management that wants to transfer to that next generation um, that may not have the capital to facilitate a transaction. But you have to do the numbers, and like you said, there has to be a fit because that's very, very important. Well, thanks, Chris. Those insights are certainly helpful. Uh, that'll wrap up today's podcast. Thank you, Chris, and thanks to everyone who joined us today. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Chief Insights. Subscribe to this podcast series 
at cohencpa.com slash podcasts. To gain more insights that may impact you, visit us at cohencpa.com slash impact. Cohen & Company is not rendering legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Information contained in this podcast is considered accurate as of the date of recording. Any action based on information in this podcast should only be taken after a detailed review of the specific facts, circumstances, and current law.